getting right into this thing, how would you describe what it is that you do? Uh, good question. So uh, I'm a spiritual teacher and I help people uh, to realize the truth of the nature and I help people in the spiritual path. I support them when they need support and I move them deeper when they're ready. And then I bring them both uh, pain and reassurance. <laughs> uh, and I, I basically hold their hand on their way to happiness, peace and equanimity until they no longer need my hand. Oh, and then they uh, leave me, hopefully. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah, just uh, providing guidance to uh, true freedom, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Providing guidance to freedom. Yes. Mm. So how would you describe what true freedom is? <laughs> That's a big one. <laughs> Um, well, the first the first answer that comes to my mind is is very simple. Freedom is freedom. You either have it or you don't. Mm. You're free or you aren't. Like if you have to wonder if you're free, if you have any doubts about whether you're free, if you have to wonder about the degrees of your freedom, then you're obviously not free, or your freedom is incomplete. I see. So. Uh, Practically speaking, uh, freedom, uh, well, we, we can talk about freedom as freedom from suffering. That's, that's one way to talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. so for as long as you still suffer, uh, there is more freedom to experience. There is more joy to find. There is more happiness to find. There is more equanimity to experience. Uh, but in practical terms, uh, the freedom is in action. So freedom is also uh, very deep self-possession, meaning that you are completely conscious and in full control of your behavior. And what uh, prevents us from that is actually the resistance, fear, and trepidation of the inner experience uh, that we don't want to have. So, so those resistances to, to the difficult internal experience, and it can be fear, uh, humiliation, the, the loss of the pain of loss, uh, like many, many things we can, we can discuss them at length, but, but in avoiding what we consider to be, what we perceive to be difficult and unpleasant experience and, and enduring for it, all the time, what we perceive to be happy or pleasant experience, we become slaves to this dynamic. Yeah. And uh, that's Buddhism 101 right there. <laughs> yes, yes, pretty much. Yes. So when 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 they talk about clinging and avoidance in Buddhism, that's exactly uh, that's exactly what, what, what they're talking about. Absolutely. Yes. Mm. Yes. There's only one path described in many, many different words by many, many different traditions. So all arguments between them are very silly. Mm. So I think you already touched upon it, but how would you describe what suffering is? I guess taking the other side of the coin, what is suffering in your understanding of it? Well, again, yeah, we can, we can talk about suffering in, in, many, in many different 
ways. Uh, we can talk about suffering. Some people talk about suffering as identification. Some, some people talk about suffering as judgment. Some people, you can talk about suffering in many ways. But uh, most fundamentally, most fundamentally, suffering is resistance to experience. Uh -huh. So suffering is, is the belief or a view, we, we, we could put it this way, that the experience that you're having is something that you shouldn't be having. Yeah. That you would rather have something else, that you would rather experience something else. And, and it's connected to this idea of spirituality of being right here, right now, because so right here, right now is the only experience accessible to you. So, so when you're not here or now, whether you're in the past or in the future, you're basically wanting to be somewhere else. Yeah. Right. So if, if you, if you're in the past and it's a traumatic past and you're reliving your past, uh, difficulties, your past defenses, your past traumas, if it's a good past, then you're nostalgizing. Then in, in the future, right? If you're thinking about the bad future, then you're experiencing fear and anxiety also right now, but you are there, you're in the future, but the, the experience of fear and anxiety is right now yeah. and you don't like it, of course. Or if you're hopeful about the future or, and very ecstatic about the future, then you're also fantasizing about how good it will be. Not now, yeah. right? You, you, you're going somewhere else. So, so, so this sort of, uh, rejection of the present experience in favor of something else, be it in the past in the future or some fantasy realms or anything at all, uh, is what constitutes dreaming. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's what constitutes suffering. So, so we sort of, we pick and choose. We, we always want some experience that is not the one that we're having. And, and if we're having some a, a difficult experience, then we want to escape it. We want to avoid it. And that's suffering. So suffering and bondage, suffering and uh, uh, being enslaved, uh, suffering and unconscious programming, suffering and those those kind of automatic unconscious behaviors, suffering and lack of freedom are very, very deeply connected in this way. Yeah. Does this make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Be here now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The teaching is so simple, but it seems yes. Like I, mean, I mean, it's extraordinarily simple. It's just the path is very simple. It's just not easy. Yeah. Hmm. It's peculiar in that way. Yes. Because really, when it comes down to it, I guess if you want to explain it in a simplified manner, it's we've all heard this before. Obviously, it's be in the moment, right? Be yes. here in the yes. moment. That's really what it comes down to. But it's precisely. Like but yes, we. But sometimes but the difficulty is. Oh, I'm, I apologize. I didn't no, mean to. Right, right. <laughs> but the difficulty is, is that sometimes what, what you experience in the moment is not pleasant at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. It like you begin to meditate. Uh, you meditate for a few hours, uh, and there's boredom, or there's fear, or there's anxiety, or or there's anger, or there's something else. You know. So so it's so the habitual conditioned response of the mind is. No, this is not what I want. I want to distract myself now with something else. I, I want, I want to create some other experience for myself. Uh, and some meditators actually in their meditating practice, 
even encourage this sort of creation of experience. So whenever something uncomfortable comes up, they say, oh, you know, imagine or give it compassion or something like this. You know, the, the, uh, what, what you really need to do is to give it attention, mm. is to give it awareness. And attention and awareness is the strongest, deepest form of compassion. So, so, so a very, uh, popular, a very common mistake in meditation is yearning for a specific experience or trying to avoid any difficult experience in meditation. And it's the same mistake that people make in life. Yeah. You know? Interesting. Mm. So, it seems and, to be, and, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm going to finish up now. So, so, and, and, the, and the teaching is very simple. Uh, but the path is not easy to follow because it involves accepting the whole variety, the whole universe of your experiences. And some of them can be excruciatingly painful. And, but some of them would be excruciatingly, not excruciatingly, but overwhelmingly beautiful yeah. and extraordinarily beautiful because there's a deep symmetry of all experiences in the mind. It's like if you can, if you can be in the, in the deepest pit of despair, then you can also be at the highest peak of ecstasy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And all of those experiences are explored in the spiritual path, accepted, lived through uh, on the, on the way to liberation. Mm. Yeah. So would you say the path to liberation is finding the equanimity, the equanimity between the two poles of experience that you described the, the, the symmetry between the two, it's the, it's to find somewhere in the middle, you know, the, the middle I mean, way. You can't Yes and no, because uh, uh, yes, because equanimity and acceptance of all experience is your true nature. Mm -hmm. From this perspective, yes. No, because you, it's not something that you can find. <laughs> because, yeah. Because, yeah. because like for as long, if you think that you found it, like for example, if you think that you learn to balance it, then there is some effort involved in it. I see. And the true equanimity and peace are completely effortless. So, so it's not like trying to find it or, or, or balance it or all, all of those are still attempts to control it. It's basically opening up to more and more of it, opening up to any experience at all and actually experiencing it, which, which is the difficult part of the path. Uh, but the other side of this coin is is bliss. The other side of this coin is happiness. The other side of this coin is joy. So, so basically, loosening resistance and expectations from uh, experience, I see. and I then see. with time, what happens is, is is if you as you lose resistance and expectation of experience, you start seeing for yourself. It's not like something you find; it finds yourself. You start seeing for yourself that they all. Uh, that the, you, that you can take them all, mm -hmm. that none of them lasts forever, that mm -hmm. none of them kills you, that you absolutely capable to go through the most difficult fear as well as the most blissful ecstatic experience, which can be so amazing that it's almost painful uh, in its unfamiliarity, and and slowly the mind learns to stop differentiating and being open to everything. Yeah, well said. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Wow. We're only uh, 15 minutes in. I feel like we've covered a lot of bases. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> oh, man. Mm. Oh, man. I don't even know where to go from here. It seems like... It seems like from what you described is um, something that is 
where how do I put this? It's like the difference between pain and suffering, you know? Yes. It's like uh, when you truly do have no outcome orientation, it it just it, pain is different. I don't know how to explain. Yes. It. <laughs> no, no, I I, I I I understand precisely what you're saying. Yes, physical pain is, unav- is unavoidable. Pain is different. Suffering is not pain. Suffering, yeah. strictly speaking, is a very peculiar thing. Suffering comes up uh, in the total absence of pain. Like, you know, uh, for example, what, what happens in meditation? Like you take a beginner meditator or even an intermediate meditator and they meditate, let's say, for two or three hours. They're not going to like it. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so what's happening? Uh, your your body's completely uh, safe. You're fed. You're warm. You're comfortable. You're not doing anything. And then, and yet, it can be fearful, boring, exhausting, difficult. So, what is that? That's suffering, right? So, suffering is basically a difficult experience. You can also call it pain, but but it's not a physical pain. Sometimes it manifests as physical pain, but it's temporary. Uh, but but you can call it like emotional, energetic pain. Uh, you know the pain, the some some sort of pain of internal experience that has nothing to do with the physical circumstances of yeah. of, of your situation. And in, that's why it all comes from the past. So all suffering is coming from the past. It's not. It's it's coming from our conditioning. It's coming from the abuses. It's coming from the mistreatment. It's it's coming from uh, the sickness of our society. It's coming from how we were treated before, and and all the beliefs that we accumulated, and all the suppression, the emotional suppression that that we uh, have been doing to ourselves. So so suffering is basically you can define suffering as discomfort, which can which can rise to tremendous level levels in the total absence of objective difficulty <laughs> so that that's suffering wow that's good man <sighs> and it all comes down to attachment yes in a way yes yes to attachment to uh feeling a certain way uh which uh which also can be described as attachment to uh, uh, life circumstance, to other people, to things we owe, to a relationship. and But fundamentally, all of those attachments are attachments to feeling a certain way. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. yeah. ultimately, you're going to lose it all. We all die. Yeah. So, but, but, but the fear of losing it uh, is the fear of feeling that. And actually, even the fear of death. I mean... The interesting thing about death is that you cannot experience death. Yeah, yeah. Like if you if you if you define death, it depends on how you define death, right? So if you if you define death as the lack of experience, there isn't something that you can can experience. So so it, so it's absurd to be afraid of it, right? If you yeah. if you're afraid of death, then a, a, a logical question is, well, why why aren't you afraid of the eternity? Well, like if you're afraid of the eternity of death, right? Then I could ask you, why aren't you afraid of the eternity? that happened before you were born huh. and why don't you remember it <laughs> and if you think something is really wrong with the eternity of death then how come you're totally fine with with you with with your past of eternity before you were born <laughs> so so what we're really afraid is is we're afraid of ego death uh, we're afraid of the experience of ego death and that feels like death oftentimes but it's still an experience well fortunately that's the only death that you can ever experience 
So, so the only death that you can experience and, and all of the fear with it is the death of enlightenment, the death of seeing yourself in, in its totality, in, in your totality. The death, of the, the death of being much more conscious than you were before. Mm. Mm. So we, we fear experience, not death. And, and in this, in this way, uh, actually, uh, all fear of death is the fear of enlightenment and all fear of death and the fear of enlightenment is also simultaneously the fear of life, <laughs> the fear of its fullness, the fear of, of, of your freedom, the fear of not being afraid yeah. to live it fully the way you want. Wow. Not the way which is expected from you. Wow, man. So for me, what comes up in my mind is the mm -hmm. adage of uh, you got to die before you die. Yeah. And then yeah. true freedom ensues. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. It makes so much sense. Wow. That was really good, man. I just, I was following you there. I was like, that makes so much sense. We, we fear the experience of death, but technically there is no Experience. experience of death yes yes like for as long as you know you, you may think oh i'm dying i'm dying oh, oh this is this is death or i'm dying for as long as there is any thought for as long as there's any experience at all you're still alive yeah <laughs> that's crazy man i mean it's it like crazy yes because yeah. in a way we're already dead like yes, we're already uh, yeah you know what i mean like we're dying right now this is the yes. death process Yes, yes. But once you can recognize that, that makes life so much more beautiful. Yeah, precisely, precisely, yes. You can fear pain, but you cannot fear death. So actually the fear of death is the fear of the pain of becoming more conscious, the fear of making the unconscious pain and the discontent that controls us conscious, the fear of our own fear, the fear of yes. the experience of fear, the fear of our tears. The fear of our despair, the fear of our argument with death and the argument with Ooh, life. That's good. That's good, man. The argument with death. And oh, which is also the argument with life. Mm. Yeah, one and the same. Yes, because death and life are two sides of the same coin. They cannot exist without each other. So powerful. I never heard anybody say it like that. Uh, the fear of death is the fear of enlightenment. Yes. That's good stuff. It's like I've I've known that somewhere deep in my being, in my mm -hmm. soul, but I've never heard anyone articulate that. And when she said it, I was like, oh, oh of course. That's <laughs> so good. Yes, yes. That's good, man. I also heard you say one time, um, once you recognize your own death, you figure out that everything is meaningless, right? And then... You could get caught in a loop, a sort of attachment of everything is meaningless, right? But even the idea that everything is meaningless is, itself, said, yes. is meaningless. I'm like, that's is good. Itself meaningless. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, good. yes, yes, yes. That's <laughs> uh, perfect because I feel as though a lot of us, I'm not judging, I'm just saying, maybe even I was caught at this one point. I was caught in that everything is meaningless, almost a sort of like uh, a sort of nihilism. You know, once yeah. you do recognize that every, I'm going to, yes. I'm going to lose me as, you know, Gary, I'm going to lose everything. The idea of what my life is someday, it's going to, one of these days could be tomorrow, could be next week when I'm 80, one of these days, everything I'm going to lose. So if you like, if you dwell on that too much, you could just get caught in a sort of nihilism and see everything is meaningless. Um, but then again, 
I recognize that that is meaningless, but I never heard anybody say it like you. Like, yeah, even that thought is yes. meaningless. Like, for, yes. figuring out that everything is meaningless. So, yeah, you just have a way with words, man. Absolutely, yes. Thank you. And and it's it's not a it, it's not even that you know if you dwell on it too much, you you should dwell on it as much as it takes until it until it completely saturates you and it's and it's in your bones, but. But also, the next part is also to realize that you cannot live like this. And, and the, this idea that everything is meaningless, therefore, uh, there is like no point in life, let's say, yeah. right, is, is also meaningless and stupid and empty in itself. So, so the, point, the point of life is pleasure, you know. So, so, so when people get stuck in, in this kind of... I wouldn't call it necessarily nihilism. So nihilism is, is something very different. Nihilism actually, uh, so, so, you know, once I said, so the difference be between nihilism and enlightenment can be easily overlooked. Uh, on the surface, they may appear the same. But deep down, a nihilist uh, un understands that life is meaningless because of death, but he's very bitter about it. Uh-huh, I see. Mm -hmm. So an enlightened person, man or woman, also understands that life is is meaningless because of because of death. But he's very joyful about it. That's the good news. So, so yes, yeah, so on the experiential <laughs> level, it, it gives rise to the joy and appreciation uh -huh. of life. I see. And and this appreciation actually in, in the very kind of deep stage of uh, making peace with death, of accepting death. Uh, which is which is actually after the I am stage. Uh, I, I call it I'm not stage. Uh, this joy is already there, actually at this at this stage. So I wouldn't so I wouldn't call it nihilism. So so there's still there's there's joy of life, uh, along with the meaninglessness. But people who get stuck there don't move further. They exhibit some sort of passivity about life. Hmm. So it's like if everything is meaningless, then why do anything at all? Yeah. Right. So you can just sit and just enjoy the passive life. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's not. But it's not exactly the completely enlightened state. So in the completely enlightened state, is just as easy to rest as it is to be active. There's just as much joy in resting, in meditation or sleep, as it is in being active. Right. It's the only way it can be. It's a natural state. So so imagine someone got. Uh, because it's a natural state of the mind, and uh, we only depart from it by conditioning ourselves with violence and threats of violence and, and mistreatment and abuse, then uh, it should be absolutely reasonable to imagine that someone at the age of 20 can have a completely enlightened mind. It's a natural state, right? So, so if we are to take example of some some sages and masters that were realized, but were extraordinarily passive in their life. Life would be a very, very boring thing. You know, if you're just, if you, if you're 20 or you, you cannot live a passive life, you know, you will miss out on so many things. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're 70 and you're like in life in Saj or whatever, and then all you do is just sit around on your, on your butt and join your own body and, and your own existence and, 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 and saying a few words to your, disciples then sure you know but what if you're 20 
you know yeah big difference so so, so there's there's in in this period of the realization there's there's a sort of passivity that is to be transcended yeah because even doing nothing is doing something yes <laughs> yes precisely hmm. Yeah, so you mentioned stages. Would you be able to take us through the map of these stages? Yes. Yeah, so I describe it in, in, in one of my answers, uh, which is actually pinned on my core profile. What, what are the levels of enlightenment? So I say there are no levels of enlightenment, but there are levels of dreaming. Okay. And those stages, they were identified in various uh, spiritual traditions as well in, in very different terms. So... Uh, in the ancient spiritual tra traditions, section of my website there's uh, a question what is the ego and uh, in in this answer i also sort of try to put together buddhism and hinduism and and, and zen buddhism and how they describe the stages of, of the realization and how the identity shifts uh happen uh, through it so uh your readers are welcome to read it so here i will say i will roughly describe it the stages actually also correspond to chakras uh, and, uh, so the stages that I'm talking about only corresponds to the last, uh, uh, four chakras. I mean, the, 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 the first three, uh, I don't even talk about too much. I mean, uh, they, they can kind of all, they, they, there's no, in my experience, uh, a very kind of easily identifiable, uh, uh, shift between the the lower stages or lower chakras, but mm -hmm. but 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 between the higher stages, there are quite easily identifiable shifts. Which is not to say uh, that you cannot jump back and forth, or they cannot be sort of blurry, because the experience is very individual, and uh, and those stages of the realizations, even though. Uh, they usually come in uh, more or less linear fashion because it's hard to uh, realize some things before you realize some previous things. But but they still would be more accurately described as facets of realizations rather than stages. But they do usually come in in in, in some sort of a uh, linear fashion. Mm -hmm. So there was a long prelude. I'm sorry. But, uh, <laughs> uh, so basically, the very first stage uh, that happens is the presence of uh, an impersonal witness. So so some people would call it the witnessing stage. Some people could call it uh, the soul. So, so in the dream state, uh, you feel that I am, that, that you are uh, a person in the body, looking outside the body in, in, into the physical world. So then when the impersonal witness appears, and some people would call it God, and some people would call it conscience, some people would call it awareness. It, it really doesn't matter what you call it at all. But, but you feel like, uh, you're still you in some way. Uh, but there is an impersonal witness which feels truer than you. Mm. And, and, and so, uh, so the saying is like, uh, I am, uh, infinite stillness observing my imperfect personality or, or something like this, they, 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 they come from this stage. So at this stage, there's usually a strong belief that the ego is needed, that you cannot survive without ego, and, and that, that 
uh, this is enlightenment. Actually, at every stage, it feels like this is enlightenment and there's nothing beyond it. And it was the same for me. So, 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 uh, kind of the ego is very deceptive. It always, it always, it always doesn't want to see more of itself. It, it always doesn't want to disappear deeper. So, so it always like wants to say, this is the final thing. Uh-huh. Uh, just like in the dream state, you, you don't want to admit that there's something beyond it. So, hmm. so, uh, so I think that this is what Osho called the spiritual body. Uh, so this is like the, the first authentic non-dual uh, existence. So the, there's a presence of some witness. Uh, there's, there's still a lot of ego. Uh, it's still identified with, uh, the, uh, the emotions are oftentimes perceived as energy. So, so you stop like being a slave of society in, in such a profound way as you are when, when you're dreaming, uh, there is some level of independence, but you're still a slave of your emotional energy. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so this is where people start speaking about energies, uh-huh. uh, a lot, uh, People describe themselves as empaths, so feel, feeling other people's pain. Uh, people sort of pay a, a lot of attention to energies. There's still a lot of resistance to negative energies and a lot of clinging to positive energies. So, so depending on how much spiritual work a person has done, on the level of behavior, equanimity, lack of anger, uh, lack of spite, uh, good willingness this might not be different much from the dream state but usually what happens is the vocabulary changes so you know so 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 there are there are a lot of spiritual people at this stage who speak spiritual language but they basically describe an ordinary person when they speak about themselves so uh it's like instead of saying i don't like you they would say you have negative energy (laughs) instead of saying I dump you, they would say, I let you go, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and mm-hmm. things like that. So, so, so there's, uh, there is some authentic insight. There is some understanding that there's something beyond. Yeah. There is a presence of, of impersonal witness. Uh, there's usually a renaming of hmm. emotions into energies, or like some people will say emotions, energy emotions. There, there is, hmm. there is hmm. more acceptance, uh, of those energies for sure. Uh, but it's still, quite limited and and depending on a person uh, from a perspective of the personality unconditional love equanimity and calmness there might not be a lot of change now so some people call it witnessing stage now as this progresses deeper and deeper and there is a moment of realization that pretty much everything that you thought about yourself everything that you thought about your character all your psychology basically is not real and it's self-created. Uh, there is, there is a moment of deep, re- deep surrender, deep release into, uh, the unknown, so, so to say. So, so, uh, so this is a moment when, when the ego is truly disidentified with. And, uh, this is what was described uh 
historically as uh, Chat Sitananda, truth, consciousness, bliss. So, so basically, at this stage, you realize that nothing you thought of yourself is true. Ego is completely untrue. Only consciousness is true. And you literally kind of become consciousness. You become loving awareness. So the saying is like, I am always here. I am you. Uh, I am love. Uh, I see. They, they, they come from this stage. Like so this is the I am. Right? What? A complete merging. Yes. So it's not complete yet, okay. <laughs> but, 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 it, but at least like the ego is abandoned uh, entirely as something that you identified with. So there's usually a tremendous release of bliss. There's, there's a very deep stage of equanimity. The, uh, res the resistance to experience uh, uh, becomes even lighter. Uh, and more importantly, your kind of your main identity becomes becomes consciousness, love, being, right? So this is I would, I would describe it as the I am stage. So so whereas the previous stage is basically just a presence of something that points you to the beyond, or some people would hold the higher self. At this stage, you literally become the higher self. So so. Uh, uh, so, whereas the previous stage is sort of continuing, continuing your life as an ego, but with a with the presence of impersonal witness, uh, here uh, you are becoming life itself. You are becoming love itself. You are becoming life itself. So, from the ultimate perspective, what's going on in this stage is you. It's basically the appreciation of the beauty and the bliss of life. Is, uh, that's not all, actually, because because after the uh, the beauty, the appreciation of the beauty and the bliss and the the pleasurableness of life, after becoming life itself, after after appreciation appreciating the unity with life, you also have to appreciate the emptiness and finality of death. Uh -huh. And so, uh, at this stage, uh, at the I am stage, the uh, identity uh, is sort of present and rooted here. So, you always hear, I am here, right here, right now, the consciousness. Uh, but there's no consciousness in death. So, so, uh, so the appreciation of death, not actual dying, the, the, body, the, the body leaps through this process just fine. So just feed it, let it sleep, and it's going to leap through the process just fine. If you don't do anything to the body, it's, it's going to thank you for it. It's going to flower. It's going to become more healthy. It's all happening in the mind. So, so the appreciation of the emptiness of death is when you realize that you don't exist. Uh, so, so I would call it the I'm not stage. So this is where people start saying that I am nothing. Yeah. I'm eternity. Uh, it, I'm not here. Mm -hmm. So uh, the identity moves to something which is almost impossible to describe. So some people describe it as uh, transcendental uh, awareness. So it's not here. It's not even here. So you basically you're looking at death at this stage. You're looking at your final destiny. So so whereas previously you were here and you were here mm -hmm. very very deeply. You stop being here. So uh, uh, it, it's a stage of being consumed by the void. It's the stage of being consumed by, by emptiness. Hmm. 
it's, it's a very deep appreciation of the uh, emptiness of life, yeah, of its yeah. meaninglessness, and, and of the finality of death for you. So it's like goes from yin to yang. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this usually comes, comes after, I mean, it always pretty much like it comes after the I am because it's actually more difficult. It's, it's rarer. It's, it's more painful. There's, there's more fear there. Uh, so, uh, then finally you can say that, that there is a station as described in Tibetan Buddhism, for example, is when, when those things merge together, when, when you realize that uh, being and non-being are one and they cannot be separated. Yeah. So, so sometimes they describe, describe as neither being nor non-being. Uh, sometimes it, it describes as neither perception nor non-perception. Uh, it was described as the birthplace of Buddhas. Also, although technically you can't even describe the amnot station as Buddhahood, but you seriously cannot des describe, uh, the I am stage is Buddhahood because, uh, uh, this is, I would say like, this is the birthplace of Bodhisattvas and Arhats, but, but not Buddhas. Uh, there's usually, uh, not usually always, there's, there's a lot of suffering between the I am and I'm not. Yeah. So, so you can describe it as sainthood. Uh, this is the place that Jesus Christ taught, taught from, but there's still a, a lot of suffering. Mm -hmm. So some, uh, uh, I don't remember who, uh, maybe Maharaji, maybe, no, no, no. Oh, Maharaj, probably. So I don't remember who said this quote. So uh, he said, uh, he said, love tells me that I'm everything. Wisdom tells me that I'm nothing. In between those two, my life flows. So he was talking about that. Yeah, that was Nishragadna. Yeah, well, yes, thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you. That's, that's him. Yes. So, so he was talking about this stage. So beyond I'm not, beyond I am, beyond I'm not, and I'm, I am and I'm not, I'm neither. Yeah. So ultimately this, this, this just means that I, uh, if, if you actually translate it into common language, right? You can, you can talk about these things in a very, very spiritual ways, but you can also talk about these things in very common language. You can basically say, all this means is I'll be dead. But right now I'm alive. <laughs> and it's in a sort of a very, very deep uh, appreciation and integration of both is what gives rise to this uh, I, I neither being nor non-being. Yeah. Wow. So ultimately it's still quite esoteric. And and the uh, the return to the body isn't complete yet. So uh, ultimately you return to the body to such a full extent that neither this beautiful, blissful uh, identity of the ever-present consciousness in I'm not, neither this mystical, very uh, untouchable, transcendental identity uh, in a, well, I, I use, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Uh, I meant to say I am. So, so neither this mystical transcendental identity uh, in I'm not an old and a present, and the only true identity is actually your body. So you come back to your body uh, in a very, very ordinary, common, profo profoundly ordinary way, and and you realize yourself as the body, because all of the stages actually happen in the mind. 
So strictly speaking, enlightenment is a very interesting journey. It's a journey. When you begin this journey, you inhabit the mind, literally. So the thing that you think you are when you're beginning this journey only exists in the mind. It doesn't exist in reality. It doesn't mean your body doesn't exist. We love to confuse ego with the body. We think a lot of spiritual people think the ego is the body. The ego is not the body at all. Uh, but it's an identity that lives in the mind. And it thinks that it lives. It actually doesn't at all. So, so, so enlightenment is a journey from inhabiting the mind through the mind. So, so first the mind makes realization. Ah, there's consciousness. I just, this, this thoughts that just exist in the mind. So, so it's a journey from the mind, through the mind, then through the heart. So through the layers of emotional suppression, through the layers of suffering, through, through compassion, through fear, uh, through uh, emotional pain and uh, all the self-denials. And, and so from the mind, through the heart, back to the body. Hmm. So from my perspective, I am the body and that's all I am. <laughs> Wow. Jeez, man. That was too good. It makes you it makes you indistinguishable with any other living being. So like from my from my perspective, when I look at a squirrel or I look at any animal, I don't see them any different at all. Right. So maybe like I have a slightly bigger brain, but you know, two legs, two arms, they get cold, they get they get uh uh uh, hungry, uh, they experience pain just like me. They're alive just like me. They're gonna die just like me. So, so there's, so, so the love of enlightenment. It starts with you. It starts with yourself. Then it grows to include all people, mm -hmm. and then it grows to include all life, mm -hmm. all living beings. The because ultimately, there is no difference. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Which is really just love for yourself. <laughs> what? It's really just love for yourself. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And love for yourself allows it all to happen because it's because it's true and it's always been true. Yeah. Uh, so I, I also often like to make this point that uh you know how to to, to say to tell between uh an authentic realization and just some weird idea, some hallucination they they can appear to be true in meditation or, or in psychedelic trips, the, the, the authentic insight, it always has the flavor of, I've always known this. Yeah. It's always been true. It's always been like that. Always. I was just lying to myself. I was just pretending. Mm -hmm. I was just in denial. It never has a flavor of, oh, I went to some realm and I found something out. I went to some realm and I was told no, it always has the flavor of, I have always known it. I just didn't want to admit it. I was just in denial. Yeah, it's like an aha. Uh -huh. And it comes, it, it, and it's applicable to authentic, ins to insights about uh, the nature of existence, the sort of philosophical things that we're talking about, life, death, as much as about thousands of insights that you have, that you will have on this path, about your psyche, about how you were and why you were this way, and or and and about all the other people, like for example, that I, you know, that like you realize that you've you've only been 
chasing very beautiful women because you were insecure and you wanted to prove something to yourself. It's also going to have a flavor of, I've always known this. Hmm. I've always, I've always suspected this. It's always been true. Yeah. You know, and just like, or like you realized that some of the people that you thought you were friends were, were never really, and they were just using you uh, to boost their ego, for example. You always feel like I've always known this. I just hmm. really didn't want to admit it. So, so all authentic insights, they have this flavor of remembering, remembrance. So enlightenment is a remembrance. Yeah. That's good, man. Ooh, it's like a eureka moment. Yes. Constant yes. eureka. A moment of remembering. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a path of abandoning lies, abandoning pretense, abandoning uh, denials. Mm -hmm. Abandoning deceit and coming back to to what you have always known, coming back to truth. Mm. Going back home. And 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 experientially it feels like, you know, from the mind through the heart and back to the body. But but on the level of the mind, on the level of the understanding which you can express in words, just like I'm I'm doing it now, it 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 feels like every insight is a remembering. Oh. It's a constant remembrance. Yes. Wow. Yes. Oh. Wow, that's good. Constant remembrance of our true nature, I guess. Yes. Wow, man. And that's like miraculous in that way. It is. It makes life that's seem miraculous. Like it's, it's a miracle. Just coming back. Well, life is miraculous. You, you no longer need other, other miracles uh, when you realize that life is a miracle in itself. Yeah, just by default. Wow. How could it's it not nice. be a miracle? Look, there was nothing. And then <laughs> yeah. you 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 some some kind of materialized from this nothingness. Yeah. And in it you're gonna go back. It's <laughs> it's the absolute miracle. You cannot understand it. Yeah. You, you cannot make sense of it. You can only surrender to it. Wow, that's good, man. Yeah. That's all we can do is surrender to it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it doesn't mean in any way that I mean science is is bad no science works it's a, it's a great tool of the mind it doesn't mean that uh all pursuits are meaningless i mean some can be extraordinary satisfactory like i i teach and help others because it gives me pleasure uh well obviously if i had to to spend every uh hour of my time earning a living or uh scavenging for food uh, that's what i would be doing it would still be a miracle uh, just like every life of every animal is a miracle, but I have a lot of free time and, and there is a tremendously suffering society. So, so I'm, I'm enjoying very much, uh, trying to help as, as many people as possible. And I think you're doing a great job, man. Um, yeah. Thank you. I don't even know what to say. Take your time, you know. <laughs> we can, we can, uh, it's good stuff. I, I know I spoke a lot. We can rest in silence for a little yeah, while, right? Just take a breath, yes, yes. Just, you know, just take a few minutes. Hmm. I don't want to do too much silence. We are doing a podcast here, it's but, true. um. But what's wrong with silence? You know, maybe some of your listeners would also benefit <laughs> from, from a few minutes of silence. Yeah.
It's a good idea. Let's all just take some deep breaths together, huh? Mm hmm. Anchor in the breath. Breath is beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's life. Always here. Oh, man. Okay. I, I'm just going to... I'll break out of the meditative state for a little bit. Get back into okay. the interview. Um okay. Where did this all start for you? Where did this all come from? If you think it's relevant, we should get into it. Some people don't think it's relevant. Um, you know, maybe it's better to describe for others. Like where would somebody start? If somebody is genuinely curious about what all this hubbub is about, how would you recommend uh, getting on the path per se? Yes, so I understand the people that say it's not relevant uh, because uh, uh, everyone's path is very individual. It's very unique. It's very personal. Uh, I mean, in my case, I consider myself to actually be uh, a little bit lucky because uh, I didn't uh, hear or study spirituality before, pretty much before it happened. So I, I was just desperate. I was going through a lot of, a lot of misery, suicidal ideation. Uh, I spent half my life in depression. And uh, like if, if you, a few years, like I had a premonition that something big is coming, but, but, but I didn't start reading before enlightenment. Uh, oh, sorry, I didn't start reading about enlightenment pretty much until two or three months before it happened. And I read a few books and I didn't understand a single thing. And then, and then after two or three months, uh, after that, pretty much very soon after that, it happened and I understood every book that I read. Mm. Uh, it very rarely happens this way. And my insight was very deep. It was abiding from the very start, which also means that it was excruciatingly painful and very dramatic. So like I cried every day for years, there was so much fear and so much, it very rarely happens this way. So it happened this way to like, let's say Eckhart Tolle, it happened this way to Osho, uh, but even very, very good, very deeply realized teachers like Adyashanti, uh, they, it didn't happen this way for them. I mean, now he's a, he's a, he's a very good, clear, deeply realized teacher, but his path was long. And he also says that, uh, for most people, it's, it's a long path. Uh, and, and, and I, and I wouldn't say that my path was short. Like, right? so in the amount of suffering and the amount of, in the, in the amount of tears, uh, resistance, uh, emotional pain, fear and stuff like that is going to be absolutely the same. So, uh, it, it all depends on the amount of conditioning that you carry. So, mm -hmm. so a short path is not an easier path. It's a more dramatic path. It's a more intense path. It's like I, I was sitting on my sofa, uh, crying and being immersed in bliss for like, uh, a few years. I, I absolutely would not, would, were not able to teach, to work. Uh, I, w I was not able to teach. There is a famous story of, uh, Eckhart Tolle spending like, uh, six, eight months on, on, you know, in homeless state on, on benches. So, so when it, when it happens this way, it's also very dramatic and very intense. It rarely happens this way. So, so don't expect it to, uh, uh usually 
it takes uh, years of continued practice of opening up and 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 moreover the the shifts that i was describing previously in the interview if you chase them they're not going to come yeah. so so an interesting thing about enlightenment is that even the deeply profound shifts of consciousness and even the state of samadhi itself and and there are various kinds of samadhis samadhis both temporary samadhi uh in meditation uh nirvakalpa samadhi or an effortless samadhi which ramana described as sahaja samadhi all of those are just experiences on the way to enlightenment actually so so that's that's an interesting thing so uh my experience is that the continued opening up to all of the emotional energetic experience is the most important thing and everything else uh like realizations samadhis uh bliss uh the experiences of oneness the experiences of infinity they will come as a result of that they cannot not come so so they come as a result of continued opening opening up and the less you chase them uh the more likely they will come hmm. so that's actually what separates the relatively mature teachers from relatively mature teachers so so the mature teachers such as uh, Osho Adyashanti and myself they uh they bring your attention back to yourself again and again and again yeah. uh, Osho once said never chase the divine if you go into chase the divine you will always miss it always focus on yourself because if you're focused on yourself you will invariably reach the divine because there is nowhere else to go so that's exactly my experience so more immature teachers they focus on enlightenment itself on like samadhi so the thing that there's they have some some trick they just need to point towards samadhi or point towards consciousness or point towards and then the students will go oh yes but but they forget that if the student is emotionally emotionally very constipated very immature with regards to their own the the level of acceptance of their own experience this is just not going to happen ever for a very simple reason because once it happens the intensity of emotion that comes after that will be so much compared to what they already cannot handle that they just won't let it happen it would be too painful for it to happen so so the most important form of practice is uh paying attention giving attention to every part of your experience giving attention to the parts of the experience that you haven't been giving it before giving direct attention yeah and direct attention is very different from description so what what we what we manage what we used to do what we're used to doing and what what we're conditioned to do is uh, we used to describe our experiences in the mind and give attention to that so we give attention to the thought that is either describing our experiences our experience uh, uh bemoaning our experience trying to figure out the reason for our experience or trying to plan plan the future in such a way that this bad experience never happens again and this is what we give attention to but we don't give attention to the actual experience to the actual experience yeah and that's what meditation does because meditation rubs you from an opportunity to distract yourself 
with something, with TV, with communicating with other people, you have nowhere to go but inwards. Uh, but you can also practice it in life, right? So the question is, uh, the, the, the most important question is, is how am I experiencing this present moment of being alive? And not, and the answer, the answer isn't, uh, this is how. You're not looking for a description. How meaning that, like, if you feel the anger, for example, how does it feel like to be angry? Let me explore that. Let me give you my attention. Is it in the chest? Where, where is it? How does my body feel when I'm angry? If, if you feel some tension, oh, there's some tension in the body. Let me explore that. Give it your attention and let it stay there, even though it's going to be uncomfortable for as long as you want, or for as long as it takes, you know? So, so, so the direction is the direction of opening up to experience. That's the most important thing of the spiritual path is the opening up to experience. So you will notice whether you're a beginning meditator or an advanced meditator, you will notice that both in meditation and, and life, the tendency of the mind is, of the mind is, is to think and talk about experience, think and talk about the past, about the future, and, and have your attention glued to that. So, so, so the most fundamental spiritual practice is ungluing this attention into the direct experience itself. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what self-realization uh, most people would describe enlightenment. I, I reserve this term for the state of the uh, unsurpassed equanimity of the Buddha. So, so, I, so I say that there is a moment of realization, there is a moment of self-realization. The, the I am stage, when you say, oh, the consciousness is true, everything else happens in consciousness. It's not me who is talking yeah. in the mind. No, I am conscious and I'm hearing this voice talking in me, right? So, so this moment, it's basically, it's just how it's experienced uh, phenomenologically, the moment when you disidentify your continually glued attention to the thought and you let it roam free. And, and so, and so uh, like people focus on conscious, people say, oh, I found conscious, but, but, but conscious was always there. So what, what happened is that your, your, your attention was glued to the thought, it was always on thought. And now it is free to explore everything else. It is free to go into emotion as a direct experience. It is free go, to go into bodily attention as a direct experience. Thought no longer has this huge pull that it absolutely, like maybe you can, you can only like for, for a second or two focus on your breath and that thought takes it back again. Right. So, so this has been erased and, and it's a much more fluid attention and 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 consciousness is just a container in in which it all happens but it's always been there yeah it's always been there it's just that you have all you have experienced emotion you have you have experienced your body but your the main focus of your attention has always been thought and that's what what that's why uh in the beginning concentration meditation is what a lot of people recommend and concentration meditation is actually uh, fundamentally, a very simple practice of doing just that, what I described, of ungluing the attention from thought. Uh, because think, think about what, what's happening there. Uh, well, let's say you just concentrate on the breath. Why breath, for example? It's very easy. Uh, the breath is always there. 
It, yeah. it goes up, it goes down. There's always some change there. It's It just serves as an anchor, which is easy to concentrate on. I could say concentrate on your pinky, but it's just a little bit more boring. You know, like you, you, you could just really focus on your pinky or you, you can focus on anything else at all. But but the gravitational pull of the thought would would be a little harder to overcome because because you used to continue stimulation from the thought. You, you, you used to, you, you know, your experience uh, is kind of boring to concentrate. It's difficult in the beginning. So so it would be more difficult to find an anchor where nothing is going on. And it would be, would be would, the thought would have like more pull, and you would have to notice again and again that you're thinking more. So, so when you concentrate on the breath, it's still difficult for most people. Thought still takes your attention back again, but it's easier. It's easier because at least there's something. It goes up, it goes down. It goes up, it goes down. There's some sensation there. There, the the always changing sensation that is easier to give your attention to. But the only thing that you're practicing, basically, by concentrating on the breath is not being continually glued to thought. I see. Yeah. So, so once, once this, uh, this gravitational pull of thought is broken, once you have experienced for the first time what it's like to actually allow your attention to go to other places, and experientially, it may feel like a huge expansion, like an opening up. It may feel like, oh, there's consciousness. There's, there can be like even moments of infinite space or infinite. That's, that's just how it feels experientially, not to have your attention constantly being glued to thought. Once, once this, uh, once this is broken, the, the attention naturally and effortlessly starts exploring the unexplored suppressed parts of your experience. So, so there could be some fear. People can start to crying. There could be, they could suddenly you will realize there, there's a lot of tensions in the body. There, there's, there's a lot of emotion discomfort, energies fluctuating, going through, you know, things like that. And it's, and it's, it, and it all was, uh, quite hidden from your view because thought was 90% of your attention. So for most people in the dream state, thought is 90% of your, of their attention. Mm -hmm. And by the way, hallucinations in meditation and psychedelic trips are nothing but pictorial thought. So even if you are in a psychedelic trip or you're deep in, in, in meditation and you're seeing a lot of hallucination, uh, you will, there will also be some emotion experience. Like for example, and in dreams too, like for example, if you're feeling it, if you're seeing a hallucinatory, hallucinatory story about, uh, someone, uh, killing you, right? Uh, it, there will be a lot of fear and and this fear as a direct experience is what needs your attention that's actually why the hallucination is there so the thought or pictorial thought if it's hallucination they arise together with a uh, energetic emotion experience that you uh, are resistant to so it's basically you can say that those are suppressed emotions and the stories around those emotions the the suppressed fears and the story around this fear. So a lot of people who go through this process, as they experience the suppressed fear, they can get a lot of, you know, delusional thoughts like, oh, you know, police is coming, someone will kill me, I feel something bad is happening right now. Well, nothing is happening. It's just, it's just the mind likes to explain the, the uh, difficult 
experience, right? So, so you're hearing an explanation of a difficult experience, but a more important part of it is the experience itself. So the movement of your attention, of your awareness from uh, the description of the experience to the experience itself, to the direct experience, is the most fundamental movement in spirituality. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it, it's the most fundamental movement in the beginning. It's even if you enter Sahaji, it, uh, Samadhi, uh, it continues to be uh, the most fundamental movement in your meditation. It continues to be the most fundamental movement in, in, in life. So, and uh, basically, a completely enlightened mind doesn't experience a lot of emotional, energetic experience. Meditation becomes not possible, and it doesn't even hallucinate on psychedelics for precisely this reason, because the all the energies, tensions, uh, emotional suppression have been experienced and healed. The body is relaxed. The mind doesn't create emotional experience out of the blue. There is, there is very little suppressed emotion, but the working through those uh, layers of resistance to your own experience, resistance to yourself, is the one and only practice, basically. Mm -hmm. So, so, so the, the true meditation is when you uh, don't try to anticipate any experience and you don't reject any experience and you give any experience your attention, but you also don't cling to it because clinging to any experience is simultaneously rejecting something that might come afterwards. When you cling to something, you say, oh, it feels so good. I don't want it to end because maybe something that will come next will be not as good. You know, so, so it's a, so clinging and rejecting are two sides of the same coin. They are, they are fundamentally the same. Right. So, so that's the true meditation and the concentration meditation is needed in the beginning to loosen up, to, to really like allow your attention to explore all aspects of what's happening in your consciousness instead of being continually glued to thought. That's its main function. And once it happened, concentration meditation is strictly speaking not even needed anymore. So if you can, if you meditate and let's say in 45 minutes, one hour time, uh, you can you you feel all sorts of you know different energies or fear or trepidation or anxiety or you begin to cry or you feel some tensions in the body and you can give it your direct attention without thoughts stealing it from you every second then you don't even need concentration meditation so so the thought sort of becomes at this stage the thought becomes a, a background don't ever try to stop it don't ever try to stop the thought it doesn't work it never works but 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 it becomes the background of your attention instead of the foreground of your attention and the foreground of your attention becomes the actual experience so so it so it's a movement from it and in the dream state is this is it's the opposite like the foreground of your attention is the thought and the background of your attention is the actual experience interesting mm, that's good does it make sense to you yeah that makes a lot of sense Mm-hmm. And then, so eventually, life just becomes the meditation, right? Yes. Right. Yes. Eventually. So at some point of time, the practice becomes effortless, meaning that you, you don't even have to encourage your attention, your awareness to go into some uh, uncomfortableness or unpleasantness or attention that arose. You just go there automatically. You can't, you can't even fight it. 
Like there's nothing you can do about it because awareness, consciousness, it wants to explore all of the uh, discomfort underneath. The mind wants to integrate back from a compartmentalized state. It wants to do that. So, so once there's a certain amount of uh, uh, momentum, right, then, then it just it just becomes so automatic that whatever happens, whatever, even if there's a slight sadness, slight fears, a crunching of the stomach, like anything, it just goes to automatic. What is that? It, and it just goes there automatically without without you any without you having any say in it. So so that's why they say that at some point of time the practice becomes effortless and your whole life becomes practice, your whole life becomes meditation. Yes. Life is the sajana. <laughs> yeah. It's good stuff, man. Wow. Whew. I knew this was gonna be a good one. I had a feeling. I had a, there's something in me. I was like, this is going to be a good talk. You're a real one. Wow. Thank you. This is good. I don't even know where to go from here, man. Um, Take your time again. <laughs> Take <yeah>. some-, <laughs> some more breaths, everybody. Deep yes. breaths in and out. <laughs> this is good. <sighs> yeah, so I usually ask this one to um, people. And I think you'll follow me on this. Would you say, you know, we go through these different samadhi stages, these different jhanas, maybe you could say. Um, and then you say we come back into the body, right? And there is this kind of returning, uh-huh. this remembering ultimately. Now, would uh-huh. you say um, once, you know, throughout the stages, we're refining ourselves to become as someone else would see a more loving being, and I know they're not actually somebody else, but would you say like, you know, people would see you as just more of a, more servitude in your character, I guess you could say more, a little bit more selfless, just in that effortlessness is a a natural sense and a natural flow toward love? Uh, Okay, first first love is not servitude. Mm, That's interesting. What's the distinction between them? Well, if I serve you, I cannot love you because I'm not your equal. If I serve you, it means that I put you above myself. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, I got you. Love is not, is not servitude. So, um, and also love, lo- love is is the most abused term in the world. Love is the most like confused, confused thing, right? <laughs> so love is not praise. Mm-hmm. Love is not servitude. Uh, love is genuine desire for your well-being. Now the question is, uh, you 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 do become more loving, absolutely, and uh, you can even say that uh, enlightenment is dying into love. It's becoming love. It's dying into love. It's it's when your love to yourself grows so much that it begins to overflow you and it spills across everyone and everything. So, yes, from this perspective, yes, you can also describe love as the absence of judgment. Now, uh, whether it is perceived as love depends on the level of confusion in another person. So if we're talking about people that understand what love is, uh, 
if we're talking about people that are open to with, with them that have opened their mind that are open to experience that are also open to being proven wrong mm. you know adishanti once said uh, very aptly that enlightenment is being proven wrong again and again and again and again <laughs> mm -hmm. by yourself most of the time but by others too right so 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 people who are open who have tasted love who can see that uh i desire for their authentic well-being then yes they would perceive me as most loving but that's not true of all people at all i see right I see. yeah because yeah. because love authentic love true love is also very painful for the ego and it feels dangerous for the ego because it exposes the ego right Like, for example, imagine, imagine someone hitting another person, right? I cannot praise them. I cannot come to them and say, oh, yeah, good job. You know, you like, but, but, but imagine that they are also very angry and defensive about it. And an innocent question with no judgment. If I, if I ask them, why did you do that? Can you tell me? They can find it extremely offensive. Mm. You see? Mm -hmm. So, so it's, uh, uh, it's the matter of perception. You know, people spat Gautama in the face. Uh, Osha said, uh, also very, uh, very correctly, very beautifully that if a person isn't ready, a thousand Buddhas will not help him. So a person needs to be ready. You know, a person needs to be ready to take responsibility for themselves, to take responsibility for their emotions. Yeah. And if, And if I'm talking to an unhinged person completely out of control that blames everyone else for their emotions, that's actually what also gives rise to violence. You know, violence is fundamentally blaming other people for how you feel. You know, so you said something to me, it made me angry. I want to harm you now. So I, I put responsibility for how I feel for my internal experience. So, you know, as, as we talked in our conversation that the whole spiritual path is deeper and deeper acceptance of how you feel. Now I put this responsibility on you to such an extent that I will, uh, want to physically harm you. Right. So, so tiptoeing around this person and making him feel better and basically, uh, Uh, succumbing to their narcissism isn't love right i can do it for a little while if i if i want to sort of if i want to if i need something from them or if if i want to hook them so to speak to love but sooner or later i will i will have to stop doing that and i will have to try to make this person look at himself Not necessarily their their behavior, as if you know, how dare you, such a bad human being, but but at a uh, internal anguish that propels them to this behavior. I would have to help them see that this behavior doesn't serve them, that this behavior is destructive both to them and others, and the internal pain that they that they experience that propels them to their behavior can be handled differently. Are they going to like it? No. Because it would means that they would have to experience more of that. They would have to get closer to it. Yeah. You know? So, so don't expect, uh, if you don't expect that, if you, if you, if you think that when you get enlightened, everyone will love you, that's an egoic fantasy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it cannot be freedom, right? Because, because you're still sort of fantasizing about being universally accepted. No Buddha was universally accepted.
Jesus was not universally accepted. No enlightened man or woman is universally accepted. Yeah. Uh, uh, Adi also had this quote, so uh, well, I don't remember how, how it went, so, 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 so I'll just say it in my, in my words. So, you cannot have your freedom until you allow others their freedom. I think that's something like, I, I think he said, he said it, something like that. He, he's absolutely right, right? If I am free myself, then I don't expect you to love me. I love you, but that's my business. Mm-hmm. You may hate me, and it's yours, right? But I cannot expect you to love me. So love just like uh, respect is a very interesting thing. It cannot be demanded. It can only be given. And you can give respect, you can give love. You cannot demand respect. You cannot demand love. It doesn't work this way. You know, if, if it's not given... F- if it's not given freely by the other, then it's not it. Right? I said, like, if, if another person doesn't give me their love freely, but I demanded it, yeah. it's not love that they're giving me. Yeah. They're giving me obedience, maybe, but it's not love. Or, or if, I, if they're not giving me their respect freely and I demand it, it's not the respect they're giving me. Maybe they, they're giving me some uh, mouth service, lip service, sorry. Yeah. Uh, here, that's 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 the native speaker, <laughs> not I, native speaker. I get it. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so they might giving me lip service or respectful behavior, but they're not giving me the respect. Maybe they're afraid of me, but fear is not respect. Mm. So, so uh, you 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 are becoming more loving and more equanimous, but the extent to which uh, uh, people will see your your love. Will depend on them. People, of course, can see commonness, and and but but different people can uh, interpret it very differently. You know, some people who are on the spiritual path and know what it's about can can see uh, unconditional love and acceptance. Some 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 will say things like, you know, I've noticed something interesting about you, uh, and and some could interpret it as, as psychopathy or so 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 theopathy if they if they're very judgmental and if they think that their passions what makes them better than everyone else. So, so it, it, it really depends on the individual that we're talking about. I'm, I'm sort of like a mirror. So if, okay. if the individual is yearning for love, yearning for truth, yearning for acceptance, then I can be like a, like a guiding house. But, but if they're not, they may out, outright hate me. Hmm. With all, like, you know, I, I get into, sometimes I get into, an extremely hateful conversation with, with spiritual people uh, by after uh, I just made one statement or one one sort of statement that contradicts current spiritual view. You get in arguments with people? I can't even imagine. Not just arguments. I mean, I would be calm, but they would be basically screaming at me and saying, and saying oh. I, I would point them to say, say, look at how angry you are. They would be like, yes, you know, and, and Jesus was also angry when he like, Chased away the money changers. Oh. This is righteous anger. I'm yeah. sorry, you're just horrible. You're just this spiritual <laughs> bypassing and things. I was looking at them and said, I don't think your anger is righteous at all. And they would get even more angry, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so it really depends on how you view uh, yourself, how much of the conditioning you see and you have seen. So I'm, I'm talking about. Right now, I gave an example of a person that's like beginning witnessing stage, which didn't, right? the, the, the transformation 
of their whole personality, the disappearance of their personality uh, into love and equanimity hasn't happened yet, but the spiritual language was acquired yeah. and, and, uh, and, and has begun to be used as a tool of uh, emotional violence confrontation, uh, just like another language was, was used before. Right. So, so ego can call spirituality just, just like, just like anything else. So, so it really, it really depends. Uh, I, I was, I was told that I'm sick. I was told that I need to see a psychiatrist. I was told that I'm a psychopath. I, I was, I was, I was told many, many things. People label me all the time. Uh, it's, uh, you know, usually, uh, a very honest, truthful person, uh, creates a strong reaction but but it's but it's a sort of a uh very much divided reaction it, it's either it's either attraction or it's a it's either deep attraction or it's a deep rejection mm. interesting and osha said once uh, actually also very very aptly osha was an extraordinary uh, clear uh uh in his realization he said your first impulse when you meet a buddha is to reject him because he offends you. Hmm. So he offends you by being just, he, he offends you by being truthful. He offends you by being honest. He offends you by his freedom. He offends you by being more relaxed than you are. He offends you by being more authentic than you are. He offends you by, by not caring about what you think of him because every ego really wants other people to care. That's how, that's how we manipulate each other. We want other people to care what they think, what, what we think of us. So what, what we think of them. So we ma manipulate them with praise and, uh, 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 criticism. But a Buddha is completely independent from you. So he offends you by this very fact. You see? Yeah. You seen as a threat. Freedom can be seen as a threat. Of course, of course, it is always seen as a threat. And if you're a slave that you don't want to be free, uh, yeah. you want to make more slaves. Yeah. Yes. Oh, no, I think, I think the saying was like, you know, uh, a slave doesn't dream about freedom. He dreams about becoming a master. That's good. Wow. Never heard that one before. <laughs> so if you neither uh, subjugate, Damn. nor you are impossible to subjugate, this is a, this is a very strange phenomenon for uh, an entity that basically exists in hierarchy in hierarchies that sees everyone is either above them yeah or below them and you're completely outside of this hierarchy it's, <laughs> yeah. it's it can yeah. be very uh, confusing and 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 disorienting and yeah. and, and no it usually does not does not create love you know yeah. so you play so a I'm different a, game. Yes, I'm only attracted to, to people who are either desperate and yearn for truth or have sort of suffered enough to see truth in what I'm saying, to say, look, okay, well, maybe this hurts, but it sounds true. So so some some people who have this yearning for authenticity, have this yearning for truth. And and unfortunately, I'm 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 sorry to say, but a lot of a lot of spiritual people who pride themselves on uh having read a lot of stuff and being very spiritual and have some even some even have some some satori experiences or use psychedelics and have seen a bunch of stuff but but in their day-to-day -day life they aren't even there yet so so one has to have a uh a yearning for truth 
Because mm. all of the, you can you can also say that all of these things like love, uh, beauty, in, infinity, uh, ease, equanimity—they are a consequence of truth. Mm. So the deepest yearning, the deepest goal of the spiritual path, is truth, and. And by the way, this this even ties to how we we spoke about the practice, right? Because because every uh, uncomfortable experiences, like be it anger, fear, or something else, is true in the sense that it is there, and you cannot argue with it. Yeah. So on on a phenomenological, experiential level, uh, this this yearning for truth uh, manifests as opening up to all of the experience that you habitually look away from. And instead look directly at it. But on the level of mind, logic, and language, uh, it manifests itself as being receptive to statements that are that you intuit to be true, even if they are uncomfortable, difficult to hear. And ultimately, a truthful, honest mind is a mind that that speaks truth effortlessly and without any disturbance. And as such, it cannot be disturbed itself. Yeah. That's good. Wow. Hey, man, um, I think we can probably wrap it up in that. That's a good line to like, you know, bring this whole thing together. Um, do you have anything else you want to say other than that? Oh, yes. So I, so I wanted to mention where I almost forgot. Please do. So, uh, so Gary will be posting uh, kindly. Will will be kindly posting uh, links to my work to the description of his video. So I yep. wanted to say that uh, there's a main website, uh, truefreedom.org. Uh, on, on the website, there's a section community which leads to my Discord sangha. It's a very active sangha. Uh, we have wonderful people there. So uh, with different channels to express yourself to uh, to discuss practice to inquire deeper into truth even to have conflict in a in a sort of consensual way as a as a tool to explore your inner emotional reaction to conflict uh, so there are many people there who support each other when the going gets tough and help each other uh, go through the difficult uh, time as well as staying uh, honest and comfortable things to each other. So that, that those are both parts of the equation. Very great community. Uh, there is There are actually a few people there whom I consider to be very good teachers. So I'm not even the only teacher there. So so we have some other people in the similar state of mind which which can help you. Uh, I do uh, video meetings with with my sangha uh, every week, every Sunday at 11 a.m. PST, uh, Pacific uh, Standard Time. So they are uh, broadcast. So they're broadcast live on on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. So there's a YouTube channel. I believe Gary also has a link for that. Uh, he will be posting it. And uh, we're using StreamYard streaming platform, so anyone could could join, uh, show up their face, and and do a video uh, conversation with me. Uh, I encourage everyone to join, and also when if you post your comments to Facebook and YouTube, I, I see them immediately and I can respond to that. So so I meet with, I meet every uh, week. I also, of course, 
give personal guidance. I speak to people one on one. I, I help them uh, in a in a personal kind of more discreet way as well. Um, and finally, I wanted to mention something else. Oh yes, and uh, and I live in California, so uh, I don't have a lot of local audience yet. Uh, I have actually just uh, come back from a two-day retreat that I was uh, making for my with my students. Uh, we rented a big Airbnb uh, in Granite Bay. Uh, there were about eighteen people there. It was extremely productive retreat. Lots of meditation, lots of emotions. Everyone cried, which is wonderful, wonderful. You know, uh, only the eyes full of tears can see the truth. That's that's also a uh, quote, and it's extremely true. So uh, it was a very productive, beautiful retreat uh, filled with uh, tears, love, and appreciation, and deeper bonding experiences. So I plan to do it more often, maybe every quarter. But uh, most of my audience, because I, I write on the internet, most of my audience is uh, scattered around the world. So for this retreat, at least half people flied, uh, flew, uh, uh, at least a couple even transatlantic flights. Uh, so the reason I'm, I'm saying this uh, is it isn't isn't all isn't to underscore that I have very devoted students, which is which is true, and I'm very grateful for them for their devotion to me, which is their devotion to truth. I, I uh, my goal is only complete when they don't need me at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but but to say that uh, I don't have a lot of uh, local audience in California, so if you are in California, you would like to uh, participate uh, to attend a retreat, or you'd like to meet me in person, or you'd like to me to give a talk or a guided meditation or a dharma talk in in, in some center uh then please reach out to me i would be more than happy to do that uh i'm i'm pretty available i, I live in redwood city and I, and I have quite some time to do this work this is the most important work that i do but yes that's it uh that's, that's what i wanted to to mention and then thank you once again gary thank you very much for this opportunity thank you, thank you for thank talking you. to me thank you for inviting me I, I really, I really appreciate it. Thank you for your questions. Yeah, for sure. This was great. Awesome talk. Um, keep doing your thing. Keep on keeping on. You're fighting the good fight. I think a lot of people can and will resonate with what you have to say. I resonate at least. Um, so yeah, keep on doing your thing. And I thank everybody that listened this long. <laughs> appreciate you as well, all your future listeners. But um, yeah, man, um, nothing else to say uh, other than thank you. Peace and thank love. You, Thank you very much. Yes, peace and love to you as well. Thank you. Thank you. Peace and love. Bye. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>